Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Coming up, poet Dalok Brathwaite will tell us about his experience writing and performing Spirit Trials, a one-man show with a unique take on the criminal justice system in America. But first, there's been so much attention on the presidential race this November, you may not be following who's running for Congress. All 435 House seats are up for grabs, another 34 seats in the U.S. Senate. Today, where we live, we check in on the man challenging Connecticut's U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal. Republican State Representative Dan Carter has served three terms in the Connecticut General Assembly, serving Bethel, Reading, Newtown, and Danbury. He's here in studio to take your questions, 860-275-7266. You can email us at where we live at WMPR.org. As always, find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Dan Carter, welcome to the show. I'm glad to be here, Lucy. Thank you. For those of you, um, for those of us who don't know a lot about you, tell us, who is Dan Carter? <laughs> the, the, the big question, who is Dan <laughs> Carter? Well, you know, um, I, I grew up uh, in a very middle-class lifestyle. My, my father was a police officer. My mom was a nurse. They were really big on service growing up. Uh, I was an Eagle Scout, very involved in scouting. So it was no surprise when I got to college, I, I chose the Air Force as a profession. I joined ROTC, and um, upon graduation, I took off to uh, Lubbock, Texas for pilot training, and I ended up spending 10 years on active duty. Um, I was in at the tail end of Desert Storm, so I flew some missions uh, over in Saudi Arabia, um, and then I was in the Bosnian, uh, I would say the Bosnian crisis. It was called Operation Provide Promise, and what we were doing is we were doing the, one of the largest humanitarian airlifts in history, and it was really a neat thing to be part of. And then I taught pilot training for a while myself down in Mississippi. And along the way, met a wonderful lady and had two kids. <laughs> so I ended up here in Connecticut, and uh, I took a job in healthcare. Uh, I was working for one of the very small companies here in Connecticut called Pfizer. I think most people know it. <laughs> and uh, so I was in sales, you know, account service kind of thing. Um, and then I moved on to another healthcare company doing, uh, like, post-orthopedic surgery. But, you know, along the way, I, I saw what was happening. I, I wasn't crazy about where we were going with the Affordable Care Act, and I wasn't excited about our economy in the state. So in 2010, I took on a two-term incumbent in my area and uh, actually won. It was a long-shot race. And, uh, you know, it was, I, I tell a lot of people that, you know, that January they did a, uh, an article and the top 10 surprises of that year prior. And it was uh, one of the top 10 surprises was my opponent lost. <laughs> Not that I won. And, you know, that just kind of, you know, sums it up. Uh, I've served three terms in the legislature. Um, I pride myself on being, I think I'm ranked third now as the most independent voter. Uh, so it means I'll buck my own party if I have to, but I've always kept my constituents in mind. Um, you know, I, I would say I'm a, a pretty true fiscal conservative, but, you know, socially speaking, obviously I'm, I'm very moderate and I'm sure your, your viewers out there are going to want to know where I stand on individual, or excuse me, your listeners mm -hmm. are going to want to know where I stand on individual things. But, uh, you know, here we are in, in, you know, this election and this time, and, and I see the same thing, you know, we, our, our state is failing in its economy. Um, I don't like where our standing is in the world. You know, obviously we're not, we're not well respected right now. Mm -hmm. And, and I've always felt that Blumenthal, while he may work hard, he's very focused on issues that keep him in the press. You know, we, we joke about it that the most dangerous place is between Dick and a microphone or, you know, he'll show up for your envelope opening. But, you know, meanwhile, there are some big things that we have to handle. And he was wrong on the Iran deal. You know, he said for a long time that he would uh, he would not support it. And he did. 
and I think he caved to political pressure. Um, so I've, I've held him accountable for that because, I mean, obviously, it's a number one state sponsor of terror. Mm-hmm. Uh, they abuse women. They kill members of the LGBT community. It's just It was just a wrong thing for us to support. Um, and, and among other issues. So that's where I've been hitting them. And, um, you know, I'm looking forward to some calls from your listeners. Why why run for U.S. Senate? Why not? <laughs> you know, if you think about it, um, you know, nobody's entitled to that position. And I think we, we get it in our mind just because somebody's been around a long time or they have a big name that somehow they're entitled to be there. And, you know, listen, one of the most important parts of our process is the fact that we want new people to stand up. You know, I have some experience as a legislator, which I think is very valuable. I've got a lot of background as a veteran and um, supporting my community. And, you know, obviously I've got a good background in healthcare, which I think is one of the looming problems. So if you look at the, the problems of our day and what's coming, I think we need, you know, people like me to stand up and get involved and not have the same tired old elite people who've been in this for decades. And that's why I stood up. You're running. The top of your ticket is Donald Trump, obviously someone who's very controversial. How does his candidacy help or hurt your campaign? You think it's controversial, really? <laughs> um, That's you know, an understatement. <laughs> well, you know, listen, this is a tough year, I think, for everybody. Uh, I, I think both candidates, you know, I, I, when I talk to people across the state, you know, both candidates are hard to deal with because, you know, people are trying to vote for who's worse or who's not worse. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very strange time. So, you know, I've been very focused on you know, this race against Richard Blumenthal, because I don't think every candidate out here should be measured against who they're going to support at the top. Now, obviously, I, I will not support Hillary Clinton, which leaves me with the Republican nominee. But um, I do hope people look, you know, at what my race is about and about what we're going after and what we're trying to change, because no matter who's elected at that top position, whether it's Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton, you need a senator out there who's going to be strong and either either buck, you know, who's ever in power or work with them. And I've shown a track record of doing both. But certainly who's an elected president matters. I mean, someone who is a military veteran, I mean, the commander in chief. I mean, a lot of the criticisms of Donald Trump is, you know, foreign policy, what he said about NATO back in the summer. Um, and, and so as someone as a veteran, I mean, what is your take on that? Well, you know, but listen, my take on my take on foreign policy in general, um, I think we're, we're failing miserably in some places. Uh, you know, I think we need to we need to have remained engaged in the Middle East in a, in a different way. You know, places like Turkey and, you know, what happened with uh, with the coup. Also in Egypt. I mean, I like the fact that both Hillary Clinton and Trump went out to meet with the president when he was in here, was in town. And I think it was very important. It was very symbolic that we're going to engage there. Um, I don't think what we're doing, we need to look at what's happening with China as well. You know, obviously the expansion of the Pacific Rim is a big problem. You know, if it could be a big problem, I shouldn't say it is now, but um, and also in Africa, you know, China just put their first base in Africa and they own rights to a lot of ports and nobody's talking about that. So, you know, right now, you know, you could look at either one of our presidential candidates and wonder how they're going to come out in foreign policy. Obviously, with Trump, people are worried about him saying something or do, you know, something outlandish. Uh, But I think, you know, with respect to making decisions, that's why it's important to look at your Senate. You know, the Senate is a is a, a. you know, the stopgap. We're the ones who are going to make, uh, you know, make great inroads in what happens in the world. And, I, you know, I, right now I'm running against a senator who never talks about it. He, he's more interested in shark fins or saline solution. So uh, that's kind of where I'm coming from. And you're alluding to the fact that before um, Richard Blumenthal became U.S. Uh, U.S. Senator for Connecticut, he was our state attorney general. Obviously, a lot of consumer issues in front of him. And, and he's still, um, you know, talks about those as a senator. But, I mean, name recognition, people know him because of that. Well, you know, everybody knows Kim Kardashian, too. So <laughs> I, I hope we're not going to elect her senator. But, you know, but listen, if people know the name. Obviously, people know, you know, he's got probably, I don't know, 
I don't want to say 100% name ID, but it's got to be close. But, you know, there's also a lot of folks out there who um, you just touched on something that, you know, they, they, they think he's forgotten that he's not attorney general anymore. And, and, and there's this feeling like, okay, so if you're always in the press and you're try, trying to take on the crusade du jour, then really what are you doing? I mean, are you doing something that's best for us or are you doing something best for you? Because when you do that, sometimes you ignore a larger problem. You know, which as attorney general he did. You know, he sued a lot of companies. Um, I say he would kind of preyed on business to create this thing that he's, oh, he's helping the little guy. When meanwhile, you know, a lot of those companies have jobs and there are neighbors and, you know, that's difficult for them. So I've, I've been somebody, I say we work with business. But, you know, with Dick Blumenthal, it's, it's interesting because a lot of people will tell me on the campaign trail, he's forgotten that he's not attorney general. And that's my point. <laughs> that's why I'm going out there and talking this way. I'm talking to Re- Representative Dan Carter, who represents um, some towns and also the city of Danbury on the western side of our state. He's running for U.S. Senate, a Republican. If you have questions or comments for Dan Carter, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. I want to take a call now. Uh, Betty's calling from Voluntown. Betty, you're on Where We Live. Hi, thanks for taking my call. To me, one of the most urgent matters that we need to address right now is replacing um, the, re- the recent loss of the current justice on the Supreme Court. So I'm very interested in hearing how you would address that issue. All right. Well, thank you very much for your uh your uh, your question, uh, Dan Carter. Great, thanks, Betty. That that's actually a great question. It it hasn't been coming up enough. <laughs> you know, it, it seems like in the beginning of the campaign, some folks were asking about that. But you know, number one. Um, I, this sound, it, I don't think it's as urgent as everybody says. I mean, <clears throat> the court has operated with you know different levels of uh, numbers of justices for years. So I don't think it's it's earth shattering urgent. Now, with that said, um, I'm somebody who says, you know, the Republicans or anybody should not be afraid of a public hearing. And that's important because, you know, whatever their decisions were behind closed doors, you know, the. The Senate has the ability to give advice and consent. By not giving hearings, they certainly were not giving advice and consent, which is in their prerogative. I, I personally think we shouldn't be afraid of hearings, you know, ever. And, and they could have just given him an up and down vote. Now, I know there are people who have concerns with Garland. You know, some would say he's very anti-business. If you look at some of, you know, some of the decisions he's made, um, he sides with labor more than business. And that could be where they're coming from. So, you know... The way I would handle it, I would I would go meet with that person. I would if I thought they were they were quality and I wanted them on board and I was going to support them. I would advocate for that among my leadership that the person should get hearings, and that's the way I would handle it. We're talking, you know, you're talking about process. I mean, a lot of people when they look at Congress, all they see is gridlock and partisan fighting. So you're one person. If you're elected, how do you change that? Well, you know, it's um. it's kind of one of those concepts. Does, does one person make a difference? And I, and I think so. I'm, maybe I'm a little bit of an idealist, but you know what happens in the legislature in Connecticut? Um, I was. It was very clear to me that there were a lot of people willing to work together, and you could find you could find allies who, on a specific issue, where you may be far apart, you know, ideologically. But you can find issues where you can partner. And, and the more you do that, then the better things get. I, I tell a story of one of the chairmen of the committee who um, – we of a committee. I don't want to give them away. <laughs> so we're, we're walking into the Hall House. It's one of the very late nights. We're debating on something. And it was kind of wrapping up. So we were done. But we were still there waiting for that last vote. And he walks up to me and he says, Dan, I have a, sh- a file I should share with you. And I look at I look at this big manila envelope with the you know, wide bottom. And I, he opens it up and there's a bottle of scotch in the bottom. <laughs> So literally, we sat, we had a drink, we talked about all kinds of stuff, all kinds of bills, and together we actually resurrected a bill that had been killed. It wasn't exciting, it was, but it was an important bill. 
And it was one of those moments where it was like, wow, like we can work together on these things. And gone are those days, like you talked about Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan and how they used to get together and they would fight each other and battle on the floor. But then, you know, then they'd be like embracing arms and patting each other on the back and be friends. And that's what we need more of. And, And we are so far apart in Washington. And I do hope that one man goes in and makes a difference like myself. And I have that opportunity. You say we're uh, far apart in Washington. Is it reflective of the climate of our country? We hear so often that we are more divided now than ever before. I think to some degree it is. We we are divided. It's, you know, politics has become more of a blood sport. <laughs> it's really, uh, it, it's it's almost disingenuous because you, you we hammer each other on things like political correctness or uh, we're so willing to be right and fight for our team. It's almost like, you know, the whether it's uh, Boston or New York, you know, they're, they're, everybody's, is, has drawn lines in the sand. And that's happened in, in our society. I see that all over the place. And there's less willingness to kind of come together on some of these issues and, and understand where each other's from. Because what you do is you, you attack issues and you start just attacking the people and you, and you get away from the issue in the long, if that makes any sense. And I think in Washington, there's, there's a lot of that. I mean, Congress's approval rating is, what, 14 percent? I mean, that's crazy. It's worse, worse than Governor Malloy's. <laughs> worse than Governor Malloy. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, he's, what, 24 now or 29? I don't know. But it's uh, – listen, I think it's possible for us to work together. Um, I think – listen, imagine having one Republican U.S. senator from Connecticut, at least having one Republican in the delegation. And, you know, I'm sure there are things we're going to battle out with each other, but there's also a lot of things we're going to work together on. And I think it's better for everybody is to have somebody willing to do that. We're getting a lot of calls. I want to talk to uh, George from Windsor. George, on where we live. What's your question? Yes. Hello, Mr. Carter. Uh, I'm a Republican in a majorly Democratic state, and uh, I'm liking what you're saying. And I just have a question. What are some of the things you vote on that are in Congress right now that would uh, benefit Connecticut? That's a good question. Um, so in, I tell you, there's so much gridlock this right now. A couple of things that we have to talk about. Um, first off, veterans is a big thing. You know, the uh, Veteran Accountability Act that was blocked uh, by Blumenthal last October would have given the chance for our veterans in the state to have, you know, some recourse or, you know, the VA having some accountability for things that were going on. For instance, right now, I think one out of three people who call the VA on the hotline get rolled over. And, you know, we have a big problem with veterans, even in our own state. And by the way, we have some of the best VAs. Um, West Haven VA is pretty awesome. I've been down there a lot. But with that said, that's I think the veterans issue is really important. And uh, so the Veterans Choice Program is up right now. Blumenthal happens to be blocking it. Um, I talked to John McCain with it about it last week, and um, I think that's something we need to fight for. Uh, Zika funding is a big one. You know, Blumenthal's out there talking about it being a public health crisis. Yet, you know, they blocked it three times because of a, of a political need <laughs> to block it. And, you know, we've just had one of the first cases in Connecticut come up here in the last day or so. Uh, so I think the Zika funding is important um, for us here in the state. And, of course, um, I, I think we have, to, we have to make some changes with respect to how we're handling Iran um, in that situation, we have to take a tougher stance, put sanctions back in place. Um, obviously, we're getting walked on there with respect to how our, our Navy is being treated and as rates of remove. So I think we need to work on that as well. So there's three three good options. <laughs> you mentioned um, Blumenthal um, and veterans legislation. I mean, your party as well has blocked in Congress, has blocked very important legislation that would help um, 
reform the VA, help caregivers in this country. So, I mean, we, we look at the bureaucracy of the VA. What are some ways that can we can really see change and support trickling down to local communities? Well, for, first off, I, I'll, before I acquiesce that they blocked anything, I, I'd have to know which bills we're talking about. We're talking about 2014. Yeah. So Senator uh, Bernie Sanders had yeah. raised an accountability bill to help get more money towards um, health care. And yeah. when, when there's a lot of attention on um, wait times in the VA, and that was actually blocked by the Senate. So I'd, I'd like to... I'd to see the bill because I might have supported Bernie on that one, <laughs> you know. Because yeah. here's the, here's the problem I have. Um, every politician out there, it's almost like they use they use veterans uh, for their campaign. Everybody wants to stand behind a veteran. Everybody wants to say they're for veterans, and you know sometimes they don't actually get the legitimate help they need. It's it's almost like you know they just want to keep putting bills forward and say, look, I'm standing for veterans. Um, and and that does happen on both sides. I know that I've seen it in Hartford happen on both sides. And it's really, it's really disgusting to me because I really do want to see the veterans get help. Here's a good example. You know, a, a veteran who, who needs financial help in this state often has to lose their house and their car before they get any help. I mean, that's ridiculous to me. We do nothing to prevent that. And, and to your point, the health care issue for veterans is a huge problem. But there have been you know, people on both sides of the aisle who just take that on and, and give it lip service because we've been talking about it for years and that's why, you know, the same thing I accused Blumenthal on. So uh, I'll, I'll go look at Bernie Sanders' bill, and I'll tell you what, you know, in the next week or so, I'll come out publicly why I would be for or against it. I'll take another call. Uh, Jane is calling uh, Where We Live. Jane, you're on Where We Live from Hamden. Yes, good morning. I just wanted to put in a few good words for having somebody who's um, focused on consumer, consumer safety, as is Senator Blumenthal, um, with the water situation in Flint, Michigan, with food safety issues, with Amtrak safety, uh, with other things that he has worked on, including suggesting that CEOs that know about harmful uh, uh, products that are going into circulation and should receive prison sentences rather than a slap on the wrist with a fine, I think Senator Blumenthal is doing a fine job. All right. Well, Jane, uh, so obviously a supporter of Senator Blumenthal. I mean, what's your yeah. take? I mean, there are people who know and sure, like Senator sure. Blumenthal. Hey, Jane, you know, I can tell you this. Listen, I understand where you're coming from, and consumer protection issues are important. And that's, you know, whether you're talking about genetically modified uh, food labeling, that sort of thing, you know, those are things that I've supported. Uh, you know, don't forget, I've been the ranking member of general law in Connecticut for four years, and that's what we do. We, you know, we look at consumer protection issues, and we try to do our best to solve them. My argument with Senator Blumenthal is that's it. He's, he's a one-trick pony, and, and many of those issues he takes on, you know, he uses a couple of interesting, you know, verbs. I'm calling, I'm urging, I'm doing – but oftentimes he's not even solving the problem. So there's this perception that he's out there solving all those issues. Um, you know, look at look at some of the things he's ignored. I mean, crumbling foundations in the eastern part of the state. He knew about that issue, and he didn't take it on because it wasn't politically advantageous. And so what happens next? We use that concrete in Yukon. We use it in our roads and bridges. And we have thousands of people in their homes who have no recourse. Now, right now, we're finally stepping up, and people are getting involved. But that was something he had the opportunity to lead on a long time ago. So I'm not saying that those issues he takes on are wrong. I'm saying that they should not be the focus of a United States senator. And there's a difference there. You brought up the crumbling foundations. Obviously, you've been in the Connecticut General Assembly now for three terms. Did, was the state a little too slow to help those homeowners? I think the state was. Uh, I think the state has been slow to help those homeowners. I mean, frankly, a lot of us didn't know about this until this what 
I'd say, with the last two years, it's finally come up for us. See, he was he was brought into the fold very early on and was, uh, you know, met with a state representative, and they were looking at this, and they were looking at this from the perspective of what can the federal government do? Because obviously, if you think about it, it was a natural act in one sense. I mean, it was bad, it was bad concrete due to minerals in the concrete. So now these folks who have these homes, the foundations are cracking, they're falling apart. Uh, we need to do something, I think, federally speaking, to, to step in and help. Uh, but he's ignored it. And, and that's and that's my criticism because if you're if you're worried about gas pumps or whatever else, sometimes you're ignoring things that are really big, and and I, that's why I'm attacking Blumenthal constantly on is this need to be in the camera and the eye and choose your your political agenda over what's right for everybody. And and it's interesting because like, like Jane just said, you know, Jane came on and she sees him as this guy who's standing up for the little guy, and I know that, but he's not totally if he's ignoring things that are bigger like the Iran deal. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I'm here with Dan Carter. He's a Republican, a state representative in the General Assembly for Connecticut, running against Richard Blumenthal. Um, if you're on, if you're on standby, waiting to uh, ask a call or ask a question, rather, uh, to Dan Carter, please remain with us. We'll be back after a short break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Dan Carter's in studio with me. He's a Republican state representative in the Connecticut General Assembly. He's running now for U.S. Senate against incumbent Democrat Richard Blumenthal. Do you have a question or a comment? 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. You can email where we live at WMPR. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. I want to take a call now, Dan. Uh, Matt has been holding from West Hartford. Matt, you're on where we live. Hi, thanks for uh, taking the call. Uh, Dan, you know, there seems to be a contradiction in what you're saying about uh, the Iran deal and veterans. I'm a veteran myself, uh, served in Iraq. I've been to Afghanistan as a civilian. And I know from experience that when we demonize groups of people, it makes it really hard to see long-term peaceful solutions. And I'm just thinking about this Iran deal and the fact that soft power actually works for once. We put sanctions on Iran, really harsh sanctions, and it brought Iran to the negotiating table. Uh, it, we find a, a nuclear deal that took depleted uranium out of Iran, and there are fewer centrifuges than there were when, when President Bush left office. So I'm really wondering, uh, what could we actually get out of more sanctions and out of backing off of this deal? And in addition to that, I'd love for you to comment on, you know, we've spent four, um, we will spend four to six trillion dollars on our war on terror before all is said and done. And this idea that we're going to sort of take an aggressive posture toward Iran and potentially create and foment the conditions of another war is really concerning to me. Uh, what say you about the, the long-term cost of these wars, what they've already been, and how they've hurt veterans? I, you know, I think the best way to, to keep uh, from having uh, more veterans to take care of is to have fewer wars. All right, Matt. So two questions there. Uh, first, Iran deal, and then war on terror and consequences. Excellent. Hey, and, and Matt, thanks for your uh, service. Uh, you know, anybody out there who stands up has my uh, my gratitude. So you know, looking at um, uh, Iran, uh, obviously we did use sanctions, and they did supposedly bring Iran to the table. I hear this a lot, um, and you know. Look where look where we are. I mean, obviously, what we've done is we've said we have uh, delayed their ability to get a nuclear weapon. Um, frankly, I, I don't think we've really delayed it that much. I think there was a, a lot more behind the scenes with respect to giving them, you know, what is their money back, 
you know, because remember, it was originally it was their money. It was the, the sanctions were against them. But, you know, we've had those sanctions in place for a very long time for a lot of good reasons. And one of those reasons to me is the fact that, you know, look at what's happened even in recent years. Iran has waged a proxy war against us. It killed 196 Americans with IEDs up till 2011, wounded another 800 others. Um, you know, it's basically they've been a bad actor all the way. And I do not think for a minute that we've delayed them from getting nuclear weapon very long. And their history shows that they're not, uh, you know, very good dealing with us. But one thing you brought up was very important to understand. And, you know, I've heard Blumenthal say this and I've heard Obama say this, that somehow our only alternative was to go to war. And I do not believe that for a minute, that the only alternative to this Iran deal was to go to war or use force. And that's what people allege, which kind of gets us to that next question. You know, what do we do about the war on terror? You know, frankly, um, you know, we're, go- we're going to have to spend some money on the war on terror. Uh, my view on it is that I would want to make sure that more people in the United States, our law enforcement, have access to federal resources and that they're partnering with the federal government, like uh, Homeland Security. I mean, we need to spend money on that. Um, we need to do it in a smart way, obviously. But we, you know, when I say having those resources, it's very hard to send somebody to school from, let's say, there's a police officer in Reading, Connecticut. It's very difficult to send that person out to school somewhere um, because they have to fill that position. So the federal government should help that. And we should use what, like, the New York model would be. You know, they're doing a very good job overall. So we're going to have to spend money doing that. We are going to have to fight ISIS abroad. Um, it can be done through, like what I talked about earlier, about engagement, making sure that we're, you know, we're engaged in the process with Egypt and Turkey. Because right now, you know, Moscow and Russia, they're the ones who are stepping in. And, you know, they have a lot of interests there. We we don't want to lose our position there. But I'm not saying we're, we need to go over and invade. You know, I think that people look at this as an either or. And, and that's where it comes from politics we talked about earlier. We got a tweet from Jeremy, and he wanted to know, you touched on this, should the U.S. be slowly increasing the number of U.S. soldiers fighting ISIS in Iraq and Syria? You know, um, I'll be honest, I don't know the answer to that question, because one of the most important parts of being, I think, um, as a U.S. senator or even a congressperson or congressman, is that um, you want to make sure that you have an avenue to the military leaders and understand exactly what their position is and what they're looking for in the frame of resources. See, too often we've learned over the years that when politicians get involved in, in the actual decision on how to you know, accomplish the goal, sometimes they're wrong. <laughs> so I would leave those, those force expectations up to you know, the military leaders and negotiate that with them. My sense is that we don't have to increase numbers. I think we, maybe we move our resources around. We will have to have some ground troops on the ground, you know, special operators, people teaching. You know, we have to teach those forces over there. Um, and the politicians need to back them up. Uh, I, I'm not thinking that we have to go in and increase our force at this time. Uh, I wanted to take another call now. Uh, Ron is calling from Fairfield. Ron, you're on Where We Live. Hi. Uh, yeah, my, my question for uh, Dan Carter is um, how, uh, how does he feel that the um, people in the state of Connecticut um, are going to react to the fact that uh, he voted against the post-Sandy Hook bill, um, uh, especially since at the time he was representing he was representing Newtown, uh, where, of course, it happened. All right, Ron, thank you for your call. So he, again, is talking about, I think you were the only one of the Newtown delegations in the state, uh, the General Assembly, who voted against the, the Connecticut law after the, yeah. the tragedy. Uh, tell us about the thinking. Yeah. That. Well, thanks, Ron. I appreciate the question. I mean, I've, I've been hoping that question comes up, obviously. Uh, listen, I, I, take on, um, I take on the people, and especially Blumenthal, for their stance on gun control. You know, pro- after Sandy Hook, uh, I went out and introduced a couple of important bills. Uh, one of those bills called for background checks. I think 
you know, it's common sense. We have background checks to keep felons from having guns. Um, but I also went further. Uh, I addressed training. You know, the fact that when you get a permit, you never have to go back and shoot again. So that's something we should address. That's something we should talk about. I address the fact that when people um, are guilty of gun crimes, then maybe we should restrict early access or early parole, early release, things like that, because we don't treat gun crimes seriously in this state. Uh, we also need to make sure we're putting money aside for training so people understand the importance of safe storage and all that. And the most important bill I put forth would have addressed what happens with somebody in your home who has some sort of mental illness or a mental problem diagnosed and, and whether or not they should be able to have a gun in the home or whether it's in a safe. We could have had that conversation. My bills would have actually prevented something like Sandy Hook from happening. Um, now, with respect to the Newtown bill, I do not believe for a minute that taking the, the AR-15 and making it an assault weapon, it, because it looks what, like it does, when there are far more dangerous guns, far more dangerous guns, that was a political decision. It was a political goal. And meanwhile, we have ignored what's happening on the streets of Bridgeport, Hartford, New Haven, and how people are dying every day. And you have somebody like Blumenthal who walks into church and says, we're going to get those guns off the street. That's baloney. If you want to get the guns off the street, elect me. Because that's, what's, that's what the problem is. And too often we've made this political you know, game about what the AR-15 was or wasn't, and that's been the focus of everything. In fact, they're just more focused on raising money off of this deal instead of actually solving it. And there were good Democrats you know, who voted against that deal as well for the same reason. And uh, I think people out there need to understand that, you know, <laughs> I, I'm very common sense. Uh, I have a very common sense approach towards this gun legislation. And the fact that I voted against that did because it was wrong. And the people in Newtown actually elected me again because people in Newtown understand that there were a lot there was a lot more to this that happened in Sandy Hook. And, um, you know, too often Republicans will just say, oh, it's mental health. Well, it's more than mental health. It's there's it's part of it. But we have to take this on seriously, and I'm, I'm afraid too many people are weak and don't do it. I mean, you're looking for a seat in the U.S. Senate. I mean, talk about uh, gun control from the, the, the seat of Congress, and, and what would gun control look like to you? Well, I think, I think the most important thing is that you know, we find a way to make sure the NICS system is you know, working and that people get a, you know, some sort of background check. Um, a lot of this is going to be up to the states. So I think what the United States has to do from a federal perspective is make sure the states have the tools to do the background checks. I mean, that's really, really important. Um, that has been the sticking point in politics for far too long. I, I also think that the United States needs to do more to address gun trafficking in the country. That would help us tremendously because we're on the I-95 corridor. And, you know, for so long, they didn't even have, a, you know, an ATF director. That was it's ridiculous to me that, that we don't you know, make that a priority. But. You know, I've taken on the NRA pretty hard um, and, and, and even the, uh, I'd say the anti-gun folks pretty hard as well, because we've come to this point where it's so politically divided that there is, it seems to be no room for compromise for anybody anymore. And that's, that's just really sad. And I took a lot of heat because I've taken on both sides. Um, but that's, that's okay by me. <laughs> well, Democrats in Congress, you know, they keep bringing up the bill to expand background checks for people. You would agree with that? I do. I do agree with background checks. Um, you know, each, each bill that has been brought up, um, each bill has its own little, we'll say they're, uh, they're rats inside the bill sometimes. And I think Republicans are just as guilty of it. I think we need to spend more time in the U.S. Senate and Congress in having up or down votes on specific concepts instead of making these big aircraft carrier bills that have things in it that they're trying to wedge in the other side. And I think that's part of the problem because the gun debate now does that, too. It's, it's more of a political debate than actually solving the issue. I'll take another call. Sean is calling from New Haven. Sean, you're on where we live. Hi, thank you for taking my call. 
Uh, my question or comment is uh, in regards to the, the response that he had talking about Sandy Hook, about being tougher on gun crime and taking him more serious. And I don't see how that relates to a crime where the perpetrator intends on being killed during or immediately after the crime. All right, Sean, thank you for your comment. So, so Sean, that's a, that's a good distinction. Okay, what you're talking about, you're talking about a perpetrator who is going to be the person who has the gun and commit the crime. What I'm talking about is getting those guns off the street and re, you know, reducing access or making sure the access is to people who legitimately have a right. And, and, and I think it's a difference when I'm talking about gun crime. Part of this is, yes, if you have somebody who commits a crime, like a robbery or, uh, you know, what is it, Obama just released a couple hundred people. And a number of them had gun, gun crimes. But he said they were nonviolent because they never used the gun. Well, that's stupid. <laughs> you know, so when I say about uh, refi- re- people who have early release and parole, we're tougher on those people because we don't want them to get the guns in the first place. Because what ends up happening is that gun makes it from one hand to the another. You know, maybe it's uh, traded for drugs. Maybe it's sold. So that's what I'm talking about is stemming, you know, the, the gun flow. Uh, let's talk about the economy now. Obviously, you're a resident of Connecticut. You've served in the General Assembly. People are not happy. I want to take another call. Jeff from East Lime, you're on where we live. Hi, Jeff. thanks for taking my call. Uh, Dan, I can mop the floor with you on the gun thing. Fewer guns equals fewer corpses. It's that simple. It's not rocket science. But the reason I called in is why do the Republicans consistently insist on rewarding corporations for shipping jobs overseas. A fella who is a toolmaker would have a job for $50,000 a year, now has to work at Burger King and get $17,000, $15,000 and paying taxes on only $15,000. And then you guys turn around and call these people takers. Um, okay, Jeff. Well, thank you uh, for your, your comment. Um, so let's talk so, about the economy and again about these, this idea of, of jobs going overseas. So, Jeff, um, obviously, uh, I appreciate the question. I mean, it's, there's a lot of folks out there who want to point the finger to the other side and say who's to blame for this. But I'll tell you some of the things that um, I certainly believe in to bring jobs back here. And, and you're not going to like to hear it, frankly, because, uh, you know, we're going to have to look at changing our tax system. We're going to have to reduce our corporate taxes to be more competitive. We're going to have to reduce some of the regulation to get companies back here and, you know, look at Connecticut, repatriate that money back to Connecticut. Um, same thing with manufacturing, because we, we overregulate. And I, I don't know where you can blame Republicans for that, because everything I've seen in the, the legislature for the last six years and what I know of the history of the last 40 years in the state, it's not Republicans who've been driving this out. Um, granted, there are a few. You know, I, I, I would take on some of the uh, some of the governor's issues, prior governors. Um, and I'm not worried about who to blame right now. I'm, I'm more worried about getting those jobs back in the state. Um, supporting companies like Sikorsky, supporting Pratt and Whitney, um, finding ways to you know support manufacturing in the state. That's what we need to do. And I don't look at Republicans as the one who's driven that business away. Uh, Jane is calling from Hamden. Jane, you're on where we live. Oh, okay, thank you for taking my call. Um, uh, excuse me. Uh, yeah, I would like to know um, what the uh, candidate's position is on inserting women's health issues into legislation to control the vote, similar to how they, how um, Planned Parenthood funding is basically used as a as a tool. Um, right. uh, I'm I'm a, a veteran, and also uh, I believe in um, uh, pro-choice, and 
just kind of it's interesting that people are controlling this uh controlled this for many years uh who don't have the ability but obviously there were supreme court decisions and also i was wondering um what his feeling would be towards um the justices i know he spoke about it before um uh, but it didn't really seem to uh go a little bit, go deeper. And uh, thank you very much. All right, Jane. So we're short on time. Do you want to answer? Okay, yeah, so I'll go fast. Um, Jane, thanks for the question. Thanks for your service. Uh, I love it when veterans call call in. Uh, So so with respect to Planned Parenthood, I I agree with you. You know, I support Planned Parenthood. Um, Obviously what happens is it's too easy to take that and make it a wedge issue, and both sides do it. You know, most recently I, I bring it up in the Zika funding because, you know, the Zika bill was all about the fact that there are uh, Planned Parenthood clinics down in Puerto Rico who do not get federal Medicaid reimbursement. And so what the Democrats wanted to do was they wanted to have them get special money when everything else was being done through public health channels and through public health clinics. And they wanted to do that because they knew they could hold it against Republicans for not supporting Planned Parenthood. And that's that's how that happened in that case. Now, there are times it happens the other way around because um, obviously there are a lot of people who don't want to federally fund abortion. And with Planned Parenthood, it's not federally funded. And by the way, I do not agree with federally funding abortion because, it's you know, but I do I do see this as a women's health issue. Um, I do support Roe v. Wade. I'm not about to change that, which gets into what I think about Supreme Court justices. Um, I'm, listen, I'm, a, I'm a pretty straight shooter that I really do support and defend the Constitution. I spent my whole life doing so. I don't want a judge who is an ad, as a um, is going to be uh, fighting a battle either side. You know, I want somebody who just looks at the Constitution, who interprets it for what it is, and is not going to be an activist. You know, I, that's that's very important to me. Uh, I want somebody who seems to me is middle of the road and really supports the Constitution. And I think it's the best we can do. I want to take another, just a real quick call. Ben from Wallingford, we have a little bit of time. What's your question for Dan Carter? I just wanted to know the candidate's position on the latest science that has come out and shown that we need to stop building fossil fuels in order to mitigate climate change, and specifically what he would do about the frac gas pipelines that are coming into Connecticut here and how whether he would support them or stop them from coming in. Thank you, Ben, for your question. Um, so that's a good question, Ben, about especially about the uh, the, the fracking, because there's been a bill recently um, in the last couple of years about you know transporting fracking waste through the state of Connecticut, which um, I supported blocking you know fracking waste from coming through the state. Um, I think it's important we do look at the science objectively as we can, and I, I can tell you this, you know, my 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 background. I have a lot of science in my background. I pay attention to it. Um, I'm not I'm not sure that you know global warming is this is where we're going is totally man made. I do think we have an effect on it. I think, you know, we need to make common sense decisions about what we put into our air and what we breathe. I've tried to be a a good steward of the environment, things like banning microbeads and things like that. So I I think if you see legislation that I'll support in the future, it'll be very environmental friendly. But I'm going to be very, very, very fair handed in it uh, to make sure that we're not uh, we're not overstepping our bounds the other way as well. Well, I want to thank Dan Carter, currently as a Republican state representative serving the 2nd District, Bethel, Danbury, Newtown, and Reading. Before we go, I wanted to ask you in one sentence, why should people vote for you over Dick Blumenthal? Well, I think, I think folks, you know, I think folks understand that uh, with, yeah, one sentence. It's pretty difficult. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I, I, I'm a fresh look at it. I will always make my decisions and what's best for the constituents, for the state of Connecticut, for America. Um, it's not about my political future. I've never been a camera hog. I've always been the guy who takes on tough issues with backbone. Um, I leave it to my constituents and, and folks to understand where I stand on these issues and hold me accountable. 
I did want to add that we have asked Richard Blumenthal to join us here on Where We Live. No response yet from his campaign. Hopefully with your attendance here today, Dan Carter, we'll hear from Senator Blumenthal. I hope so, too. I've been, I've been pushing him for more debates, and uh, he, he's pretty reluctant. I want to thank you uh, for coming on and letting our listeners know a little bit about your yourself and your campaign. So thank you so much, Dan Carter. Enjoyed it, Lucy. Thank you. Next, spoken word artist and California native Dalak Brathwaite will perform spirit trials in Hartford this weekend. We're going to hear about that unique one-hour show, learn more about Dalak's work with young people. That's coming up. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Nationally known poet, actor, musician, hip-hop artist, and educator, Dalak Brathwaite is in Connecticut this week. He'll perform his one-man theatrical performance called Spirit Trials at the University of St. Joseph in West Hartford this weekend. Right now, Dalak is in studio with us to talk more about his one-man show. Welcome to Where We Live. Thank you for having me. And welcome to Connecticut. So you're a California native? I am. So tell us about Spirit Trials. Sure. Um, well, my elevator pitch, I, I, I live in Los Angeles, so my elevator pitch is uh, um, addiction, religion, and the law intersect in this state-sponsored uh, uh, state-sponsored uh, drug recovery program. And, uh, and an anonymous narrator, me, uh, embodies for the program participants in order to understand my own role in what appears to be a rite of passage mm. for a young black male through the criminal justice system. So you're drawing on an experience you had with the criminal justice system? Sure, about eight years ago. And, um, and yeah, I adapted, I interpreted. Uh, uh, I started working on this piece about five years ago. And, um, and since that time, I really feel like the, the conversation around mass incarceration, the, the conversation around... Uh, the failed effort uh, of the war on drugs and uh, and also kind of the abuse of law that um, I think I've witnessed, at least, and many people in my community have witnessed uh, by the police and uh, against people of color, especially young people of color. I think that conversation has um, simultaneously started to rise as I started to develop this piece, which is fortunate, you know, um, uh, because... Uh, it provides a context for this work. Give us a preview. I know you're a performer. Can you give us a little bit of uh, spirit trials here in studio? Sure, 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 sure. Um, uh, well, I'm the good Negro. You know what I'm saying? Um, like I recycle and stuff. You know, the good Negro. Uh, if we're gonna put labels on it, uh, this is what I managed to gather from uh, the random people who might have thought of it a compliment to say, "I like black people like you," or. Um, you're one of the good ones, which my Rosetta Stone for racism translated into you're a good Negro. Um, I didn't mind it. Uh, I actually kind of liked it. It kind of made me proud. Being a good one was kind of like being a Negro. You know, black folks could say it to me endearingly. Everybody else probably shouldn't say it out loud. If I was trying to prove anything to anyone, it was to my crew, to my peers, that I could be down without letting the man hold me here. I always got this feeling like I was born with a strike already, that through goodness I could receive penitence, forgiveness for a sin not my own. And yeah, I am good. 
and bright and qualified and polite. <laughs> I'm nonviolent. Nonviolent. I got a pretty good outlook on life. I smile a lot. My teeth are bright. They think that I'm cute. Uh, my nose is right. You know, my lips just big enough. Just big enough. What's up? You like? What it do? I mean, are you in the mood for a little bit of taboo? I do like check off, and I know you like to check off your to-do. I am the desire without the fear. I'm safe. I'm trustworthy. You need diversity in the workplace? Great. I need a career. I'm just playing the game with the tokens given. We already Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. Here's your golden ticket. A fix for your fixation. Your methadone prescription. Starbucks equivalent to your fantasy addiction. Uh, your guiltless pleasure. Your diet soda. Your fat-free loaf. Your coke-free crack. Your Barack Obama. You voted for him, right? You didn't even know he was black. We the element of surprise. The black-white elephant in the room. The beauty and the pain of Bella Fitzgerald's tomb. I naturally chat out the channel. Your television assumes it suits me. Fine, forget what you tell it to. I'm the talented tenth and a tenth of eleven percent. So few, so few, so few, so few, so few, so cool. I just prayed I never had to pay for getting credit for what never took too much effort to do. Dalek Brathwaite, wow. So a little bit of spirit trials, which you'll sure. be performing uh, this weekend. Yeah. Uh, so who who is usually in your audience? Who do you want? Who do you want to be seeing this performance? Everybody. Uh, this this performance is. Uh, at the same time to uh, validate and confirm people who have uh, uh, been subject to um, to the law, subject to surveillance, subject uh, to incarceration. I've performed this piece in prisons. I've performed this piece in juvenile detention centers, which are overwhelmingly and disproportionately um, black and uh, and Latino. And I think everybody should know that because you don't really see that reality. You come into a state like Connecticut or maybe Iowa, where I've also toured this piece. And, you know, you meet uh, predominantly white people and then you go to the prisons and it's black and Mexican. So it's just like it's not, um, uh, you know, you really know then it's like, oh, wow, this is uh, uh, something is at work here. You know, something has been at work here. So it's also to confirm these those folks when I go and visit those centers and and, and these spaces where folks are cut off from society. But then it's also, you know, to speak back to the law, to, you know, I, it's spirit trials. And um, I just adapted this. Uh, I had a, a two-week residency at California Institute of the Arts where I adapted this one-man show into a full cast production. And... Um, and the way I adapted it is to focus on the trial and to reimagine the trial. I say that we're restaging justice here. Um, uh, and so so this is for to speak back to the the the, the prosecutor who uh, who wanted to, uh, you know, just trump up my charges just because, you know, he wanted to win because the system is set up that you just uh uh, everybody, everybody's position, especially prosecutor or defender, they don't really care what they're doing. They're just really wheels in this um, in this assembly line of justice. Um, I say in the piece, I feel like um, um, I'm one in the assembly line, um, some cookie cutter justice, some one size fits all cookie cutter justice. You know, once built to help, drowned in habit and routine, the humanity sucked out of it like a slave to ritual. And that's how it feels in the courtroom that nobody's really trying to enact justice anymore. You know what we're really just trying to do. We're just trying to play our role. And so in the piece, I'm restaging justice where um, we're playing we're 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 playing the roles and 
And this is for everybody to see. Is, is justice really happening right here? Is justice, is, is, does justice happen um, in our courts? And if not, can it happen on this stage? There's a lot of attention in the last couple of years, as you know, um, towards how uh, police interact with young black men, sure. uh, a string of deadly shootings. Sure. Um, how do you uh, take that um, what's going on and, and bring that into the context of this performance? Well, I start the piece off saying, you know, if I were to grade my day-to-day behavior, I'd give myself like an A minus, B plus, eight, nine out of ten times. I'm probably doing the right thing. And, you know, for, uh, you know, for mo- most like 16 to 24-year-olds, um, that would probably be the case, you know. Um, and, but like we said, you know, like um, – uh, well, I, I, I say that, uh, you know, certain laws like don't murder, we would aspire to enforce that all the time. But certain laws like don't urinate in public or don't do drugs, can we know we're not catching everybody who does this. So really, we know when we're punishing people, we're only punishing the people who have ever been caught. And so um, that's what you really realize in, in that system. So when the police are... Um, are enforcing certain neighborhoods, certain communities, certain people a little bit more. This is the reason why we see that disproportionate amount um, in in the prisons. And then it's also the reason why we're seeing only black men, you know, being murdered. You know, like it's it's not like uh, a few black men speckled here and then there's white males who are also murdered. It's like 90 percent, 95 percent. And, you know, to watch the apathy of this country at certain times towards that happening. Like, we really look at them as black men instead of Americans. You know, if one person dies in the Middle East, we're almost ready to start a war. And then the accountability that's taken when one American dies in this country by the hands of the state, of people who are paid by the state, it's like it's a political issue. Dalek Brathwaite performs his one-man theatrical performance called Spirit Trials at the University of St. Joseph this Friday and Saturday at 8 p.m. More information on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Join us after the show for a live uncensored performance by our guest Dalek Brathwaite on Facebook Live. It'll be on our Facebook page, and if you can't catch it live, the video will be archived there later. We're going to hear more about Spirit Trials. We're going to continue this conversation on Facebook. Thanks for listening.